Hello and welcome to episode 119 of the NFL Scotland podcast. Week 5 saw some explosive plays, a possible season-defining moment for Dallas and the gold luster falling away from last season's Super Bowl teams. My name is Paul Mitchell. And my name is Gordon McGuinness. So much to talk about and very little time to deny that Cameron is missing only due to his team being scalped by a flipper at the weekend. We also have an interview with Matthew Sherry, author of a superb new book that's a must for any NFL fan. This was recorded before my podcast partner was struck down by a non-Dolphins related condition and he will <laughs> appear for that. Gordon, now I've got to tell you, Cameron has said explicitly we're not to take the mickey out of him. He is ill, he's been ill for three days now and he's got a dreadful lurgy. Uh, I don't know whether... He caught that while the dolphin was slapping him senseless or not, but he's certainly not well, and we're not to make light of that. So I presume you're okay with that as well. I'm fine with that. I mean, I, I personally, I would definitely avoid the podcast if the dolphins had put up 43 points on my team personally. Is that the biggest shock so far in the NFL this year? I mean, we've had a few surprise results, but I don't think anybody saw them going in and sticking 43 on the poor old dolphins. The most points Miami have scored since week seven of 2015. Yeah, and I think the biggest surprise is just how one-sided it was. The 49ers have definitely struggled a little bit this year. Whether or not you know it's the Super Bowl hangover, I think it's probably more due to the fact that they've had a decent number of injuries. Richard Sherman being out, and then you know Jimmy Garoppolo's probably not 100% just now. George Kittle's probably not 100%. All these things add up. But to just get absolutely dismantled, and I suppose the thing that's maybe not that surprising is that I think you have to accept that Ryan Fitzpatrick as a quarterback has these games in him. We see it every single season. You know, he'll maybe start 10 games and he'll have three or four games where he looks like a franchise quarterback. The reason why he's not is that he never strings it um, together beyond then. But this wasn't just a combination of, you know, injuries and Ryan Fitzpatrick. The, the 49ers were dread, generally just dreadful throughout the game. So uh, not only is it a big shock, because I definitely had that down as a, as a fairly comfortable 49ers win, I think it asks a lot of questions at San Francisco for the rest of the season. Yeah, it doesn't set them up too well. And it might perhaps put two a few weeks back in terms of his first appearance for Miami. Yeah, I think a lot of people expected, you know, maybe by week five, week six, we would start to see him. Um, but especially when you look at the, the way the NFL works this year and an extra playoff spot in each conference, the Dolphins are probably looking at that and thinking, you know, if they can get to eight and eight, if they can get to nine and seven, they can sneak into the playoffs. So it might be that we don't see Tua in 2020 after all. So uh, it's going to be interesting to see how that goes. So I'm going to run through some of the games and I want to, at the end of that, talk about certainly two fourth down plays. So so that's why I'm not ignoring the Thursday night game. I will come back to Texans smacking the Jaguars. No surprise, Bill O'Brien's gone. They've come back. Cardinals beating the Jets. First road win in New York since 1975. Still no surprise there. Uh, Bengals, your Ravens handled them a fairly easy defeat from the thing. The Steelers, I was slightly surprised that starting 4-0 for the first time since 1979, which was a surprise and that's got a lot of publicity, Gordon, but the Eagles played them a bit tighter than I expected. Yeah, I think the Eagles the last couple of weeks haven't looked quite as bad as they looked early in the season. Um, the interesting thing with that is that, I, I, I think this is true of the whole AFC North outside of the Bengals, and I don't think we know how good the Steelers, the Browns and the Ravens are. So the Steelers are really good defensively. I think the biggest thing that surprised me was the Eagles got close to 30 points against them. But offensively, Ben Roethlisberger you know, isn't great downfield right now. 
you know, it's really tough to know for sure how good they actually are as a team. So I think it's interesting to see how they continue their season. But starting off 4-0, again, touching on the impact of the extra playoff spot in, the, in both conferences this year, they're setting themselves up really well for a playoff push. So I want to run through, most of the other games have got a great storyline attached to them. So the Panthers beat the Falcons and the Falcons, you could see it, the, the Fox coverage showed, you know, Arthur Blank, the owner, picked side. And you just thought, well, you know, all, all he was missing was the black hoodie cape and the scythe. <laughs> you, you just knew Dan Quinn was going. And to be fair, Gordon, I think Dan Quinn knew he was going as well. First time since 1997, the Falcons have lost their opening five. Yeah, and I think, to be blunt with Atlanta, it's five games too late. He should have never came into 2020 as the head coach. The, and I don't think Dan Quinn's a bad coach. I think he's going to go off, become a defensive coordinator for a couple of years, and he'll get another crack at the whip. This is a guy who took them to a Super Bowl, and you know the spectre of that definitely loomed large with them for a long time. But they now got to the point where Matt Ryan's not playing as well as he used to um, and they just made bad decisions. Um, and I think ultimately the biggest decision was they should not have brought Dan Quinn back at the end of last year. They should have definitely been looking, you know, maybe like an Eric Bieniemy, the Kansas City Chiefs offensive coordinator, someone like that, to go in and make an impact there and try and revolutionize, revolutionize that team a little bit. So, yeah, it's not, it's not surprising. I think the only surprise was that he actually came into this year as the head coach. He had a couple of great wins towards the tail of last year, and of course you're then tempted to keep him. The Rams beat Washington 30-10. to 10. On a scale of 1-10, to 10, how scared were you for Alex Smith? Uh, about 35. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, see, see when he came in and had the first play. Now, the, the, the image that stays in my mind is Aaron Donald could have absolutely melted him but he sort of went on his back as if to piggyback him so he wouldn't have to smash him to the ground. Do you think Donald did that on purpose? I'm honestly not sure. I, I think it's kind of tough. He, Aaron Donald does not strike me as the kind of guy who in the middle of a play would stop, think, and try and be gentle with someone. I think he's the type of guy who after he's plastered you all over the um, turf, he's going to pick you back up. He doesn't seem like a bad guy at all. I struggle to feel like mid-play, he suddenly thought he would be a little bit more gentle with, uh, <laughs> with Alex Smith. But it, it was great to see him back. I mean, he's got an offensive line that, that is porous. There's just no doubt about it. And you could see him trying to get rid of the ball quicker and quicker and quicker. But if Alex Smith never plays again, he's proved something to himself. And I, I think it was important that he came back. Yeah, and I think... He's already sewn up the NFL's comeback player of the year, I think, by playing, you know, half a game on Sunday. The 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 condition his leg was in was awful. He almost died, he almost lost his leg. You know, to get back from that to even stepping foot in an NFL field and playing in a competitive game, you know, okay, he wasn't in any way good when he did. He he didn't really threaten anything downfield, all that stuff. But he was there. And to get back to that level of being able to be on the field is incredible. Let's talk about another injury then, because somebody's going to have to go through not quite the same thing, but obviously that, that mental anguish. I mean, Greg Zerline may have kicked the game-winning field goal as time expired. The Giants may have fallen to 0-5. But this is all about Dak and that horrible, horrible injury that he got. It's one of these ones, you look at the telly and you think, please don't replay it. 
Yeah, and it, it you know it's the type of one that as soon as you see, you know it's bad. Well, for everyone apart from Tony Romo, who I think straight after it was asking or saying that he hoped it was just cramp and. <laughs> God love Tony Romo. I think it was pretty obvious early on that was not cramp. Um, it, it's so tough as well for Dak, and this is where I often feel for athletes. And I, I know it's very tough to feel sympathy for a guy who's made thirty-five million dollars this year, but he's a good enough quarterback that he should have a long-term deal. Uh, the way things generally work is you get to that point in your career, you are in the top. 10 quarterbacks in the NFL, your team make you the highest paid quarterback in the NFL, and then you stay the highest paid until the next top 10 guy needs his contract topped up, and it just circles like that. Dallas and them haven't been able to come, come to an agreement, which has meant they went down the franchise tag route, and it, it's probably going to have an impact on what he can earn long term. You know, Maybe they franchise tag him again next year. I think the only good news for him is that it happened so early in the season that assuming he can come back fine, and I think he probably can, you know, he's going to be ready for the start of next season. So as long as, um, you know, there is a franchise tag situation or a contract extension, I can't even remember if they can tag him again next year, um, he should be ready to go for the, for the season next year. And even if the Cowboys were to move on, you know, it's such an important position in the NFL that someone, I think, has seen enough from the world to pay him big money. So hopefully he's able to go for the start of next year and it doesn't impact um, what he can earn long term. I think what it might do, Gordon, is it might change the quarterback market slightly for people who are in their last year deal. They might just actually sign. It's like, look, you know, I could get 100 million, but I'll tell you what, I'll settle for the 90 with the 40 million guaranteed. And if what happened to me, you know, happened to Zach happens to me, then at least I'm financially secure. So do you think this will lead to players being more cautious? I think it can go two ways. It either leads to them being more cautious in terms of, uh, what they're willing to accept from the team and maybe they take a little bit less or maybe they go even further the other way and you know you just hold out you just say I'm not I'm not playing in the last year of my contract you know we both know or I'm not playing on a franchise tag we both know I'm worth 30 plus a year give me that offer and pay me like that or I'm just going to sit out because if he sits out you know you go back and you do the same thing again next year and you can hopefully avoid that injury it's just it yeah it's the it's the tough nature of football that in a sport that is as violent as it is, you're sometimes going to have big injuries like that. Well, we certainly wish him well on the NFL Scotland podcast. Let's let's talk some games and some endings to games in a moment. But, I mean, we, we, we took the mickey out of Cameron already for the 49ers and we're quite happy to flip her back and do that again. But we're actually going to go <laughs> forward and uh, go to the Raiders Chiefs. Is this about you're going to lose a game in a season or can I give you the alternative viewpoint John Gruden is the man. He's back. I think the Raiders are better than people think this year. I think Derek Carr is having, you know, a, a pretty good season at quarterback. Um, he's not, he's not going to threaten being a top five quarterback in the NFL, but he can be good enough for them to win. Uh, I, I think they they can be a well coached enough team. John Gruden even had a little uh, pop at my company PFF after the game when he, he said something like. It's a really strange thing where he basically said, like, you know, we threw the ball downfield a lot today. You know, tell tell the stat guys at PFF that. It's fine, but that, I mean, that's literally what we preach. We, we say you should throw the ball downfield more. <laughs> did throw the ball downfield more and you won. And I think the Chiefs thing, so I, I get this, obviously, from a Ravens perspective. There's a lot of Ravens fans who every single time the Chiefs play, if they remotely struggle straight away, there's this whole, this is how the Ravens should have played the Chiefs. And, you know, the Raiders didn't blitz them too much. The Raiders, you know, et cetera, et cetera, or, you know, run the ball more. 
this game is the perfect blueprint for how you beat the Kansas City Chiefs. The blueprint for beating the Kansas City Chiefs is score 40 points. <laughs> that, yeah. That's the best hope yeah. you have. Yeah. They still scored 32. Patrick Mahomes still threw for 340 yards. I got in an argument with a Ravens fan on Twitter who in the third quarter was like, wow, this is how you slow down Patrick Mahomes. You know, he's, they've not been blitzing him and all this stuff. And I looked up the stats and I'm like, he's got 284 yards at this point. <laughs> You've not contained them at all. You just need to... I think the best thing teams against the Chiefs need to understand is that they're going to score points against you. Just keep scoring points against them. And if you get to 35-plus, hopefully they haven't scored 40 in that game and you've got a chance to beat them. I think any game plan where you think we're going to slow the game down, we're going to run the ball more, we're going to try and contain Patrick Mahomes, they're still going to score 30 points um, unless something goes wrong. So your hope is outscore them or get a little bit lucky. Yeah, I think that's that's pretty fair. Let, let's go to a couple of fourth down issues that, that we had this week. So, I mean, all credit to the Bears for coming back on the Bucks, but I mean, Tom Brady can count the fact he's got six rings. But he, <laughs> he couldn't count the fact there was four downs and just got himself confused. But, I mean, he still tried to make the play downfield. If he makes it, it's a first down and they'll go on to kick the field goal. Okay, he might have taken more of a chance than he did, but I mean, it's not like he didn't have a chance to make a play. He did. He just thought he had another one as well. Yeah, and I I mean, I think the biggest thing about that that's really frustrating for me is that I've got a burger bet on my camera and that. (laughs) (laughs) I I need the Bucks to finish above 500 and we're in. We've got the NFL Scotland group chat, and late last week before that game was played, Cameron had clearly worked out where the Bucks were going to win and lose. He got to the final two weeks, and he clearly decided to fudge that they lost two games. But this is one of the games that both me and Cameron had down as a as a Bucks win. So, um, a, a really, a, a definitely a disappointing performance because the Bears feel like one of the least impressive 4-1 teams in NFL history. Um, and I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing because if they improve in the latter part of the season, you know, they're almost definitely going to make the playoffs. So that's fine. But for a Bucks team that should be a lot better than they are, just they were kind of lackluster throughout the game. Everything just felt a little bit off. Um, you know, and when that happens, and, you know, Tom Brady, I think, so far this season – Rather than being good or bad, he's been very up and down. He's had a couple of really good games, and he's had three games that were just kind of like, eh, you know, what? Why are you here in Tampa? You're not, you're not deserving of the contract you're getting for the kind of performances we're seeing from you. So, it's going to be really interesting to see how they rebound um, going into this week because, you know, they've they've lost a game that they really should have won, and that, you know, you need to make that up at some point in the season. Absolutely. Talking of games you should have won, the Chargers probably should have beaten the Saints. They blew a 17-point lead and a field goal that clunked off the the Superdome upright, which uh, the Saints will happily take. In terms of the Saints coming back, that was great. It's the second week running that they've come back. They've got to stop digging themselves into a hole. But the really interesting play in the Monday morning quarterback play of the week, Vikings-Seahawks. The Vikings have got a chance to kick a field goal, go eight points up, not a lot of time left on the clock. They decide on fourth and one, I think from the six, to try and smash it. Now, that wins you the game, clear and obvious if you get that. But if you don't, you're handing the ball to the most dangerous quarterback in the league who can do anything. Gordon, if you were the head coach, what was your call? So I think this one's really close. Um, there was a lot of like big debates about it the following day. And, you know, so you've got a five-point lead. Um, if you kick the field goal, 
you're up by eight at that point. You then, you know, the Seahawks need to drive the length of the field, they need to score a touchdown, and they need to uh, complete the two-point conversion to tie it and take it to overtime. So you're asking a lot of them to do that. At the same time, you go for it on fourth down. If you don't get it, they still have to drive 94 yards for a touchdown. You know, they, they still have to do something pretty significant and pretty difficult in, in two minutes. So it's really not easy at all. So I don't dislike the decision to go for it on fourth down. Um, if you get it, the game's over. If you kick the field goal, the Seahawks have a long way to go back to get that game tied. If you don't make it, they have a long way to go uh, to come back for them to, to win the game. And I think the Monday morning quarterback thing, there's a fourth down play very early on in that drive or five plays in that drive where if the Seahawks don't convert in fourth and 10 from their own 23, we're not even talking about this. It's yeah. not, it, it's just not a debate. So it's one of those ones that I think you, you flip a coin. It's not, I don't think it's one that the analytics says you have to go for it in fourth down here because giving yourself an eight point lead um, and asking your opponent to drive probably 75 yards because you're probably getting a touchback and score the two-point conversion is a tough ask. But at the same time, asking them to drive 94 yards um, is a big ask as well. So I personally, I would have gone for it. Um, I think you go for it, you give yourself a couple of different opportunities to win. If you kick the field goal, you are still relying on you stopping them. You're, you're giving them the ball back. And I think any time you can try at the end of a game, the single most valuable thing in a one-score game in the final two minutes is having the ball. And if you can take the ball and, you know, win it, great. It's, you know, and and in other sports as well, you know, would you rather just hold on to that ball for the the last couple of minutes? If you get that extra yard, it's fourth and one, you should make that yard. The game's over. You know, they're not going to get another opportunity. So I can see it both ways. I I would have gone for it. See, it's interesting. It depends on where where I am. Now, if I'd been a three and one team going into Seattle, a game I was probably going to write off as not winning, I would have gone for it. But as a one-in-three team, I think I would have played the odds and actually kicked the field goal and said, OK, you've now got to get in the end zone twice, once for the touchdown and once for the two points. And we'll see if you can do that because I trust my defence. So, Because I, I think walking out of there being you know two and three sounds an awful lot better. Whereas if, if you were three and one and you'd lost in Seattle, nobody would have bothered you. So it, it, it's a really interesting one. Let's round off the games. Now, very few people gave the Titans much of a chance against the Bills. And it just goes to show this strange old NFL season that we're having. It looks like the Bills were the team that weren't really prepared to come and play. The Titans six times in the red zone, six touchdowns. Doesn't really get much better than that. No, and I think... We probably massively underestimated the Titans. Now, this is a team who were good a season ago. They got to the playoffs. They knocked off the Patriots. They then knocked off the Ravens. They had a big lead against the Chiefs. So it's not like they're in any way a bad team. Um, And Ryan Tannehill, since he got to Tennessee, has been really good. His numbers over the last couple of years, including the playoffs, 36 touchdowns, 11 interceptions since arriving um, in Tennessee. So they're really not a bad team at all. They were playing at home with some fans in the stands coming off of what, a week and a half, two weeks rest. So yes, they missed a couple of players, but they weren't missing the quarterback. Um, so that, you know, that itself has a big, has a big impact there. I think 
we probably underestimated the Titans quite a bit going into that game. Um, and I think Josh Allen fell back a little bit back to earth. Uh, and I think the combination of that, the, I mean, I do have to mention, I think the Tennessee Titans, in, in as every sports team on the planet does, will find adversity in any little thing. And the Tennessee Titans finding an, in, finding adversity in their own inability to avoid having, you know, team workouts when they weren't supposed to, or when they, I think the rule was that they, there was no rule to say they couldn't at that point, but, you know, common sense would dictate there's a coronavirus outbreak in your clubhouse. Let's maybe not go for group meetings together. Um, they very much walked off that field feeling like they were the victims in that whole situation. And when other teams have had coronavirus outbreaks and managed it a lot better, uh, I thought that was a, an interesting way to look at it. So the Jets, because everybody copies what, what works in the NFL, so the Jets tried to catch coronavirus, and it turns out they couldn't even do that. So, <laughs> you know, it's bizarre. Let, let's go to our awards, our Belter, Bowfing, and Ball Bag. Now, it has to be said that the Ball Bag Award this week comes in association with one of the best reporters in the NFL, Ian Rappaport, who managed to tweet about a manscaping product uh, that basically makes you nice and smooth and, and wonderful downstairs, shall we say, and got suspended for two weeks. I mean, I'm, I'm just wondering, you know, did he do it just off off the bat? Was there a backhander involved? Because it seems a very strange thing to do. We, we've got to be careful of libel laws as well. But were you surprised at the two-week suspension? So I, I would assume it's probably like quite a standard thing across the company. And... I would imagine it's somewhere by they've got like a deal in place and, you know, you're not allowed to, or if you want to tweet out adverts that people have approached you for, you've probably got to clear it with NFL Network first because, you know, they potentially have a deal. Um, but yeah, the Manscaped stuff and the Manscaped, they do. So they, they actually, I don't know if they still do. At one point they sponsored one of the PFF podcasts and the scripts they would send through on a weekly basis just had some of the most ludicrous things. Like they know how to word and in, in a sport that includes a sack as a defensive uh, stat, they knew how to word that. Uh, yeah. They knew how to work that in with uh, with a product that, that shaves down there. <laughs> well, Ian Rappaport had the balls to do it. Very smooth balls, apparently, <laughs> but it, it got my two-week suspension. Let's have a look at some of our belters, bowfins, and ball bags. And Gordon, you can be the, the final judge on this. The belter is pretty much a lot of people saying it's Alex Smith. Uh, the pen from Glasgow got in touch to say that. Bowfin, Dax injury, the ball bag, Michael Thomas and his anger management issue in practice. Alistair Campbell agrees with him, apart from he put in AJ Green at ball bag for his petulance and lack of effort as a player who was drafted in my fancy team. I couldn't agree more. Uh, Stephen Lynn Belter, Alex Smith, both in the 49ers. If you're just joining us on the podcast, they got smacked by the Dolphins, by the way. And the Jets owner for still not sacking Adam Gase. Now I can understand that. Uh, Dave McNevin got in touch, got to say the Belter, the Raiders for taking down Mahomes and the Chiefs, both in the Jets again. And Bob Ag is a Bears fan. Nagy's passing play call, leaving Brady plenty of time on the clock, but the Bears' D stood firm, yeah, and still Brady couldn't count properly. Uh, Zero Dark 40, Belter Khalil Mack is back, tossing Lyman around like he's at the Royal Rumble. Baufin, 35 yards rushing in total for the Bears. 
and Bob Ag. Nick Foles is now 2-0 against Tom Brady. Brady is now 2 out of 2 in refusing to shake his hand, which I thought was a great, great tweet. Uh, Long Callahan, we've got uh, Alex Smith, Dax Injury and uh, Michael Thomas there. Polly, Alex Smith, the Bucks and bad penalties again. And half an award to Michael, the Hitman Thomas in the other half to Tom Brady. Uh, Matthew Hingster, Alex Smith, the Jets and the NFL for still not having their COVID strategic plan in place. Uh, Tony B, Belter has to be the Raiders' overall performance, bowfing the first replay of Dak's injury. And Bob Ags, the NFL Scotland's team ridiculous grades last week. I think he means Cameron, not me. And Tony Robo hoping that Dak has a cramp. <laughs> yeah, I think you mentioned that. that that's just <laughs> utterly tremendous. Uh, Denny Ford, Belter, Derek Carr, Bowfing, all things Bs, Burrows and Bengals. And the refs who cheated the Giants with a let's do it for Zach set of calls. Interesting one. Philip Spears thought he could add his Bills discipline to Bowfing. Uh, George Jackson, Dak Prescott for keeping a brave face during that injury. Yeah. Bowfing, the Falcons, they're just rank and there's more love for Michael Thomas, managing to get himself benched for punching a teammate. Uh, Anita Barlow, Belton, Alex Smith, Bob Ag, the COVID rules, cancelling Pats Denver, but they made Pats play the Chiefs under the same circumstance. Uh, Ross Black, Alex Smith, Dak's injury, Bob Ag, Jim Schwartz, covering Claypool with the worst linebacker in the league. He quotes his inner Joe Biden, come on, man! And uh, he says, I know we suck, but that was just embarrassing. Uh, so so there we go. Now, we, we had a late entry, and I've got to go to my phone for this one and unlock it. This comes from a Mr. C. Hobbs of Edinburgh. <laughs> uh, the Belter, the Vegas Raiders. I wrote them off. I got that totally wrong. They have character drive and manscaped balls of steel. Uh, Bowfing, uh, the Bills, yes, the 49ers were sick. Given the injuries, it's not a total surprise. The high-flying Bills' limp performance against the Titans team, missing a number of players, was terrible. And Bobak, Michael Swinging Thomas, you've been injured all season. Well, he did play week one. Your quarterback has been struggling. Lots of nice passes this week. And getting heat and you flap your greeting baby hands around one of your own team. Proper Bob Baggery. There we go. Gordon, you have... The influence. I think we'll agree that Alex Smith gets the belter. I don't think there's much doubt about that. Where are you going with Bowfin and Bobagging? Bowfin, yeah, I think as much as I, you know, the, the deck injury, I've tried to avoid seeing that as much as possible. So I've been able to avoid having to witness that all that much. The, the New York Jets are awful. Um, <laughs> well, really I don't know if you saw, but there there was a meme of a dumpster fire with New York Jets on fire in the background. <laughs> you know, because even the dumpster fire is getting embarrassed at being linked to that. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's tough to see them doing anything other than going on sixteen at this point. I, one of my colleagues at PFF sent me a message and said the Jets are going to go on sixteen, and I was like, it's really tough to go on sixteen. And then I looked at their schedule and. I think they've got like three games that are maybe winnable and two of those are the Dolphins who are a lot better than they are. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, uh, Bowfin I think is absolutely the Jets. As much as the Michael Thomas, Bob Aggery is well-deserving, Tony Romo thinking a snapped ankle is cramp. It's just, <laughs> and, and he can't, and, and he had numerous opportunities as well. Like they, they showed a replay and he went back to, and ah, yeah, hopefully it's just cramp. Numerous times it, Tony, you've seen the replay. You know it's not cramp. 
Yeah, he's a, he's a great analyst. He's a crap doctor. I think we'll, <laughs> we'll, we'll just let him go anywhere there. Now, we've got a good interview with uh, Matthew Sherry coming up. So let, let's whisk through week six and let's pick out a couple of games that what might be interesting. So I'll run you through. We've got the Texans at Titans. We've got the Falcons at the Vikings. And that comes back to the point I made. If the Vikings had walked out as they are two and three, they've then got a chance to go three and three because that's a very winnable game. Ravens at Eagles... Uh, Lamar, 23-4 career record as a starter. Uh, honking would be the football team against the Giants. I think we'll give that a miss. Lions-Jags, 1-3 <laughs> and 1-4. and, one and four. Now, I didn't talk about the Browns-Colts because I want to talk about them for this week. The Browns go to the Steelers. Now, that is an attractive, attractive game. The Browns seem to have found their mojo. Yeah, and this goes back to, again, what I was saying earlier. How do you figure out the top three teams in the AFC North just now? Uh, you can make the case that all three of them are winning despite average quarterback play. Don't think Lamar Jackson's played anywhere near his level last year. Baker Mayfield has not been good at all. He had some horrible throws last week. And Big Ben is not the Big Ben of old. He, you know, he's an, an aging vet playing behind that team. I think it's really interesting to see how Cleveland do this week because they're going up against one of the few defenses that I think can make a huge difference in the NFL and what Pittsburgh do. Um, but what Kevin Stefanski's done in Cleveland, and I almost think losing to Baltimore in week one has helped them fly under the radar a little bit. They're 4-1, and one, so they're one loss away from being a perfect team in the NFL through five weeks. They're winning despite great quarterback play. The, the scheme they have run in, I saw some highlights and clips on Twitter of screen grabs, whereby the offensive line is moving people like four yards before the running back touches the ball. Uh, they... Another example of why you don't need to pay a lot of money for your starting running back. They lost Nick Chubb. The running game is fine with Kareem Hunt and even the young guys they have there. Um, and they're using a lot of trickery. They're moving players around. We've seen Odell Beckham throw passes. We've seen Jarvis Landry throw passes. They're willing to move players around. And I think this was always the thing I thought about the Browns coming into this season. Kevin Stefanski is a really good coach, a really good scheme designer. They're a front office that have made a lot of good decisions recently. And you know they've got a really good opportunity this week to, to make the NFL stand up and take notice. I think my my prediction would be that the Steelers win and go to 5-0. and uh, But it wouldn't shock me if the Browns pull a surprise there. Ben Roethlisberger, let's put this in context, has faced them 25 times in his career. He's 22-2-1. I mean... <laughs> It, you know, I, I don't know whether he thinks he's a shareholder because he does, definitely thinks he owns the Browns, but that that's quite incredible. There, now, there was a stat a couple of years ago, actually. I think it was last year, maybe last year, maybe the year before, that Roethlisberger was the, had the most wins of any quarterback in Cleveland since they came back into the NFL. Now, I think that's probably changed now because Baker's probably got more. But, uh, yeah, it's not, it's not a good stat to have if you're a team. It's certainly not. Would you expect the Colts to bounce back against the Bengals? Were you disappointed by the Colts against the Browns or did the Browns just play well? I think the interesting thing is that Philip Rivers doesn't look particularly good, um, which, again, probably shouldn't surprise us based on how he was at the Chargers last year. Um, I, I expect them to bounce back because the Bengals look very much like a team that are playing for next year. Uh, Joe Burrow, I think, shows a lot of really good stuff. The one thing... He's he's not going to last long in the NFL if he keeps taking pressure the way he does. And as much as you can blame a bad offensive line, 
quarterbacks own a certain amount of their pressure. And there was numerous plays against the Ravens last week where he backed into pressure while scrambling. They, they had two fumbles on sacks on plays that he should have just thrown the ball away um, and instead drifted all the way back into pressure. Takes a hit. And it's not just you take a hit, you lose the ball. You take a hit, you're, you know, you're putting your career at risk, you're shortening your career. So I think one of the things he has to learn in a hurry is when to know that just get rid of the ball and live for the next play. Like an incomplete pass is not a terrible thing in the NFL. Absolutely. I'll tell you what, I'll be interested if the Bears beat the Panthers this week, I'll give them a little bit more respect because the Panthers are three and two. Um, so the Bears could do that. Broncos, Patriots, Jets, Dolphins, Packers at Buccaneers. Aaron Rodgers' grudge tour continues, taking his love to Tampa Bay. This is going to be an absolute cracker because I think Aaron Rodgers does have a chip on his shoulder. And Tom Brady, with losing the game last week, they weren't expected. This is one you could see easily Tampa losing. Yeah, I think it, it looks like a great game uh, on paper because the Bucks have put themselves in a position whereby they have to win this week. You know, they don't have to win is maybe a stretch, but you really don't want to be in a position where uh, you're falling further behind after after a game that you should have won last week. Now, what I think is really interesting is if you look at the NFL's schedule this week, the only game going up against that on the schedule is Jets-Dolphins. So I think it's safe to say that everyone outside of Miami, and I, I mean, are Jets fans even going to want to tune into that? Probably not. So outside of Miami, everyone is going to be watching that. So it's almost like an additional primetime game. Um, Aaron Rodgers has been brilliant this year, though, and it's <laughs> whether or not drafting a first-round pick at quarterback was enough to break him out of his funk the last couple of years, but it's great to see. And I, I think as well, these are probably two of the best quarterbacks in the NFL at having that Michael Jordan being able to create a grudge in their own head um, aspect. And I think we'll probably see Brady come out and have a great game this week because he'll know that you know everyone is wanting to talk about Aaron Rodgers and his comeback. And Rodgers is playing like arguably the best player in the NFL right now. So I think this is easily a game that both teams could score 30 points and we could see the two of them just duel and it's a case of whoever has the ball at the end wins. Yeah, really looking forward to that one. Rams 49ers. The 49ers get a chance to do something, you know, to, to try and bounce back. It's a divisional game, which always feel a little bit different. So, I mean, I wouldn't write them off completely on that. Uh, Monday night football, or the late game on the Monday night, is uh, Chiefs-Bills. That could be tasty. Yeah, I think. So this is another opportunity for the Bills to to show people what they're made of. They made a bit of noise at the start of the year. Josh Allen looked like a potential MVP candidate and then really fell off last week. So, you know, it, it's a big opportunity for them. The tough thing for them is that it comes against the Kansas City Chiefs coming off a loss. The Chiefs are not going to want to drop two games in a row. You know, and again, as much as the Bills have a good defense, as much as they can run the ball and all those things, you need to. they need to go into this game Score and know they have to score thirty plus points to have a chance because the the Chiefs are probably scoring thirty plus. So, um, interesting narrative that I'm going to be interested to see if it starts to build this week. We've seen the discussion around the Ravens and Lamar Jackson, and can Lamar Jackson win the big game? The Bills in the playoffs last year lost the Texans. They had a prime time game against the Titans this week and lost. They now get a prime time game against the defending Super Bowl champions. If the Chiefs win that game, does the narrative start to be, can the Bills win the big game? Can 
Josh Allen win the big game? Can they get over that hump of a, you know, because they're going to have big games against the Patriots later in the year in all likelihood to decide the AFC East. And I wonder if you're going to get, start to get people who think the Bills can't win when it matters, um, if that happens. It's interesting. Of course, I'm looking at the, the games here on the NFL site. That's Monday at 10 o'clock. Our time, so we, we get a wee extra bonus game there. Car- great. Yeah, it's tremendous. Cardinals Cowboys rounds it off, and it's all about Big Red, Andy Dalton. It's all his. The keys, the keys to that wonderful Dallas Cowboys machine have been handed to a man who is more than capable of actually making it work. I saw a good stat early on today as well that um, Kyler Murray is actually the third winningest quarterback at that stadium because he won five games there in high school. Uh, obviously went to high school in Texas and they play the state championship at the biggest stadium possible. Uh, he won a game with Oklahoma there and this is his first time going as a, as a professional. So uh, I think I think Dak and Tony Romo are the only quarterbacks who've won more games than he has um, in that stadium. I, I, I don't think there's a huge... Uh, the, the big concern for Dallas with Dak being out is that it takes you from being able to be a threat in the playoffs. Um, but looking at the NFC East, if Andy Dalton is average at quarterback, they've still got a very good chance to win that division. The division's been awful this year. The Giants are not threatening for that division. The, the football team are not threatening for that division. The Eagles really look very suspect so far. So yeah, they only need to get to maybe even seven and nine and you probably yeah. win that division. And I think he's more than capable of that. The other thing is that they have a lot of good playmakers around. Amari Cooper is very good. Um, Michael Gallup's very good. CeeDee Lamb's one of the best rookies in the NFL so far this year. So that could be a really sneaky, fun game. That With the way the Cowboys' defense is played, I think Kyler Murray probably puts up a lot of points. And the Cowboys have the playmakers on defense to to sorry playmakers on offense to match the Cardinals. So that's another game that you could easily see both teams scoring 30-plus points and a lot of fun being had. Is it a stretch to say that Andy Dalton could become this season's Ryan Tannehill from last season? I don't think it's like I don't think he's going to be as good as Ryan Tannehill was, but there is every chance that he's going to go through this season, have a solid year, and win more games. You know, if he takes them to the playoffs, they could go on a decent run. They've got a good enough team around him that you know potentially he's going to be viewed in a very similar way, um, and then potentially you know he's springboarding himself to a bigger deal next offseason. See, I'm a kind of cynic in some ways. I think this is perfect for Andy Dalton. He can go in. He's going to play games for the Cowboys. He'll probably play the next 10. You know, that cements him as a Dallas Cowboys quarterback, without any doubt. And if he can get them into the playoffs, and it's the kind of thing, you know, on reunion days and players who get posts in front offices and, you know, that kind of thing. This is a chance for him actually to lay down a few markers if he can win a lot of games, which I think he's, he potentially can go. Yeah, and especially when they get into playing more divisional games, he's going to have an opportunity to win, you know, he's going to have some very winnable games. We saw the game at the weekend there. It wasn't difficult for him to you know, help complete the, the win against the Giants. So he's got a very good opportunity, I think, to take them to the playoffs. And, you know, you get a couple, maybe you get a little bit of luck in the first and second games in the playoffs. And all of a sudden, everyone remembers it as this magical season where Andy Dalton led them you know, to the NFC Championship game. 
Yeah, it's highly possible. Right, as I promised you at the start of this podcast, we have an interview with Matthew Sherry, who's the author of many books. He's been involved with Gridiron Magazine. Cameron and I got up with him recently, and this is what he had to say. So one of the things we like to do here at the NFL Scotland podcast is speak to people in the UK and Scotland, obviously, but outside of that as well, um, who are heavily involved with the growth of the game, American football, here in the UK. So we're delighted to be joined today uh, from Gridiron Magazine and now the author of a fantastic new book. Please welcome Matthew Sherry. Hi, guys. How are you? Very good. Thank you for joining us. And let's start right away with the book, because this is an exciting book. Um, any given Sunday, the NFL's epic 100-year history in 20 games. How's it gone so far? You've just launched it, everything going really well. Yeah, fantastic. Um, we've sold we've sold a bunch through Gridiron, and then obviously it's available Amazon, Waterstones, and everywhere else. I haven't had the first sales figures through yet, but it seems to have been really well received on, on social media. I know it caught the eye of my publishers how... You know how many people interacted with the post leading up to it coming out and then it coming out so yeah it's gone it's gone really well it's uh it was it's been an absolute pleasure really so where does so, the inspiration come from first of all what go back right to the start of this at what point did you decide i'm going to write a book and i'm going to write it about 100 years of history in the nfl i mean it was, it was one of those things by chance and and luck really um in terms of the, the guy I work with to put Gridiron, the magazine on the newsstand, um, he had a contact at a publisher who who knew that the 100th anniversary of the NFL was coming up and asked me to ask me if I'd be interested in writing a book. I've always wanted to write a book. I've never really got anywhere with trying to do it myself. So I kind of took that away and thought, yeah, I would, I'd love to do that. And ultimately, I, I was then I was then in the US We every year at Gridiron apart from this year for obvious reasons we we travel to the states two or three times a year we cover the super bowl every year and then we cover games during the season so i was on one of those trips at the time and i was with a colleague of mine and i just said how do you think i should do it there's a hundred years there it's i don't just want to tell a, a basic story and he, he actually bought me in a bookstore a college football book that is that was done the same way so they essentially took a number of games and and built the book from that now, I've changed that format slightly. I mean, that book, bizarre, not bizarrely, actually, it's a fantastic book. That's the wrong thing to say. It just doesn't talk too much about the games in a lot of cases. And I wanted to kind of bring the games into it, but still tell those those wider stories. So I ended up taking that back to the company who asked me. And they said, no, we don't want that. We just want a coffee table style book. So I ended up turning that down, to be honest, because it just it, I, I needed something that I really wanted to do, was invested in. But David Tossel from NFL UK who is a prolific author himself. He's the head of PR for NFL UK. I told him about it and he said, well, leave it with me. And he introduced me to his book agent and I ended up putting a proposal together for the book that I wanted to write. And yeah, got two or three offers for it and took took the one I took. And, and yeah, it's been great ever since. And actually in the middle of that process, I wrote a chapter about the for the second game. Because ultimately I thought that you know, the first 50 year, years will be the hardest. That was the bit I knew the least about. It was going to be a research job. So I basically just wanted to test the waters of my ability to research it and, and how much I enjoyed it. And I loved it, to be honest. From that point on, I'd, I'd have written the book from for free from that point on, probably. I was so desperate to write it. So, so yeah, it was a, it was a bit of a convoluted story, but it, it all worked out in the end. 
Because it's such a passion of yours, was was it hard to keep to you know the exact deadline that you wanted? And you know, it's one of these subjects that the content matter is almost endless. Yeah, I mean, the deadline was fine. I'm. That's the one thing I got right. I think um, I, I submitted my manuscript like four months early, just because. But I think that illustrates the passion because I just kind of fell in love and became obsessed in the project and and. You know, any spare minute I was either, either thinking about it or, or or at my desk writing it. Um, I overwrote by 25,000 words. I would say the, the, the biggest compliment I've had so far was the publishing company telling me that that's still that the publisher at that length rather than the, than the fact that I needed to remove a load of stuff. So, so yeah, I would say the passion for it meant I overwrote, but then I still had to get rid of a lot of things in there that I'd have loved to have kept in as well. Like, you could write... It's 140,000 words. I think you could probably write a million words and still not cover the the full the full story. Still, so much that was left out. So you you talked about the research element there, and obviously, yeah, that first 50 years, there's not even a lot of TV coverage of some of this stuff. How did you go about that? You know, what were your major resources? Who were the people that you reached out to, and how hard was it to try and get some color to add to the facts? Yeah, I mean, I, I found a great newspaper archive and website when I bought a subscription to. I felt like, um, you know, one of those TV detectives who goes to the local library and is scrolling through old newspapers. So that was fun. Um, I mean, the biggest joy of the whole project was I spent I spent 10 days in total, I think, at NFL Films, um, kind of access to, to their archive and, and various pieces. So they were great. I mean, obviously they came around in the early 60s, but have since collected um, a huge amount of resources from the preceding 40 years. And I also spent some time in the archives of the Hall of Fame and they were helpful with us as well, just giving me access to certain files and, and things like that. So th- those were useful. But to be honest, and, you know, the internet is such a great resource. And there's, there's actually another one, another website called Pro Football Researchers Association. And, um, yeah, they, they've got a great archive, certainly for the first 10, 15 years of the league, literally blow-by-blow blow accounts of seasons and things like that. So those were invaluable tools. And the final thing is other books. I mean, Michael McCambridge, who wrote America's Game, which to me is the definitive um, NFL book ever, and he's a good friend of mine. So I, I used kind of him as a resource at times and certainly his books as well. So in terms of going to these places, NFL films and, you know, the, the Hall of Fame archives, I mean, you're getting to see something that, you know, very, very few people in these shores have ever seen. Did, did it feel like a privilege? Yeah, massively. I mean, the, the NFL films to me is the, in particular, is the, well, it's just so special. Like, I mean, you know, we all watch America's game when it comes out the day before the, the start of the season. You know, they, they are... It's amazing, really. So I'm involved in the setup of a production company at the moment. And, you know, one of my big things is to look at what NFL films do because they're such trailblazers. And, you, and when, you, when you've researched that story, which is one of the things I had to cut out of the book, which is really frustrating, is, you know, they, they have fingerprints all over sports broadcasting around the world in that so much of what they've done has been copied. And, you know, I would say that their originality is best evidenced by the fact that you know, 60 years later, I would say that the broadcasting in this country is still just catching up to NFL films. And that is from where they were 60 years ago. Like if you, I watched back the first ever film that they created, which was a highlights package of a 1962 championship game. 
and and it was it was so far ahead of what we still see now in in other areas. So that was amazing. And then, yeah, the Hall of Fame is just. I mean, I've been I've been previous to to the book, and I've been in the archives previous to doing the book as well. And yeah, it's just cool. I mean, like they show you Tom Brady's draft card and got pieces like that out, and you know that that is a privileged position to be standing in, and you never lose sight of that fact. Now, of the games that you went back and looked at, let's, um, I haven't read the book, but I'm definitely going to. Um, obviously, you've covered 20 games in particular. Which one is the one that you wish you'd seen that you definitely wouldn't have been able to see so before you were born? Yeah, I, I mean, it's an easy answer. It's probably the 1958 championship game. It was such a defining turning point in the history of the NFL. And it was the, it was really the game where, where the, I mean, baseball was was so far ahead of anything else prior to the to 58 like to a level that people wouldn't believe now i think you know it, the baseball was as far ahead of other sports as the nfl is right now and that game was the turning point because it was you know in that in the decade leading up to that the amount of people owning tvs in the us had, had gone up by huge numbers i mean ridiculous numbers and that was the game where you know tens of millions of people were tuning in it was the first ever overtime game, so a completely new situation. And it was just, I mean, just, it was such a turning point. So it would be that one. I guess for pure drama, the Immaculate Reception would be up there as well in terms of, like, I just think to myself now, can you imagine that play happening in a game? I mean, we see crazy things happen in the NFL all the time. So, yeah, I think they, they would be the two. But truthfully, any of them, I mean, you know, the catches in there, um, you know, in other instances, the games aren't necessarily, they're not the most amazing games in the world by any stretch of the imagination. It's generally the most significant games. But those ones, those ones marry the two of having, those three, I would say, the catch as well, marry the two up have been great games with amazing finishes, but also incredibly significant for the future of the, the, the league thereafter. You make a really good point there. I do wonder what social media would be like if the Immaculate Reception happened now. It would be great, 100%. Television, though, made the NFL in many ways. Is that reflected in your writing? Yeah, absolutely. So that 58 game is, is, you know, that was a great game, but television was the reason that then it became the most popular sport in the world. And from that game, I mean, I think it was 40 million people were watching that game on TV. Um, which is just huge. And it also broke baseball television. So, you know, what's interesting is, obviously, in those days, the, the, the difficult balance of act when television came along was, was giving people access to the games on TV whilst not hurting your, your, your in-stadium audience, which at that stage was still the bedrock of every, of every team's finances. And baseball had a couple of TV experiments that went disastrously wrong, and it just hit them massively at the gate. The NFL were always really smart in terms of how they went about it and they learned lessons from from baseball. So it, it, it impacted it in two ways. One, it's it's a perfect game for TV, NFL. You know, when you look at it from the wide angle where you've got that great view of the field, you'd think actually that it was a made-for-TV product. So the product was perfect. But then actually the way they went about the television contracts, it was the Rams who were the first to do it. And basically, they agreed a deal with a network whereby the network had to rebate them for the loss on attendance. And the loss was absolutely enormous. Um, so that's where you end up with the blackout rule. So, you know, the game isn't on television in the local area unless the stadium sells out. And it's only recently that they've got rid of that because they don't need it anymore because gate receipts are so 
insignificant in the wider NFL coffers. Um, but yeah, I mean, for, for multiple reasons it made the league, and also the final way it made the league, actually, is when the AFL came along in the 60s, they agreed to the television distribution model that Bert Bell had always wanted in the NFL, which is that it's a centralised TV deal with the money split equally between teams. That didn't exist before then. So television had threatened to create a disparity in the NFL that really went against the draft and the founding of it. But ultimately, they end up the AFL end up agreeing that model and the NFL have to follow suit. And that's really why the, why the league now is such a... I mean, I, I say, say this all the time. It's a socialist operation for the teams within it, but the most capitalist organisation in the world. It's a fascinating kind of difference between the two. But yeah, TV is, is at the heart of everything with the NFL. So you obviously have a number of years' experience in writing before you came to doing a book. Gridiron magazine has been a massive success, and you can see that by the very fact you guys get to go over there and cover the Super Bowl. You know, that is what... There's so yeah. many people now in the UK that are writing for websites, that are doing podcasts, that are, you know, building content and things like that. But you guys really have been at the absolute peak of the triangle when it comes to that. Um, how important was that experience for you when it came to writing this book? Yeah, massively. I mean, you know, my transition into the, into the magazine seven years ago was from agency journalism, which which is the opposite of what magazine writing is and then book writing. I mean, books, th- this book in particular was essentially like me writing um, 20 long, 20 pieces for the magazine because they're all kind of self-contained stories. Um, so, yeah, hugely um you know, it, it is, I think I'd, it would have been harder to do from what I used to do, which was agency journalism. I've learned a lot in terms of the magazine in the last seven years, editing the magazine and, and writing bits for it. So, yeah, hugely important. Um, and, and But also the kind of writing that you want to do ultimately. This is why anybody who is a writer gets into writing to put these kinds of things together. And you looked at the 100 years of history if you were to make a prediction 100 years from now, what do you think the biggest difference will be in the NFL? I mean, I'd, I'd kind of, that's what the, the epilogue of the book was, was kind of looking at the future of the NFL through, through, through four games that I covered last year. Um, so it was, it was the opening game of the season. It might have been five. Opening game of the season. Um, the first game of the 100th season, which was the uh, Packers-Bears game. The... Uh, is that a Cleveland Browns um, Steelers game? You know the one where Miles Garrett yeah. went after um, uh, Mason Rudolph, and that one was all about concussions. That chapter, so obviously that's a big part of the journey. I think in the future. So the idea was to, and the other game actually was the the Tottenham game. So the idea was to look at future areas of the league. So the Tottenham game, the international area then obviously concussions and then the Super Bowl was the birth of Patrick Mahomes well the coronation of Patrick Mahomes as the the superstar to take the NFL into the next century I would say that the big thing I learned over the hundred years is how much the NFL has adapted from day one um you know the way they've changed rules and like several of the games would create huge rule changes that change the face of the game um, so I would say it'll still be in an extremely strong position. It may look completely different. I mean, I can't emphasise enough how different the game was 100 years ago. Like, the example I always use is if the ball went out of bounds, the player started a yard in from the sideline. So it wasn't football as we know it now. But they've always done that. They've always really adapted. Um, 
to whatever the challenges are. You know, I think that showed itself again with the virtual draft and how good a job that they did of that. Um, so I would say the key tenet of the NFL's success has been adaptability and therefore it will still be in a good place in 100 years. But what the game looks like, I mean, you know, I think the concussions thing is big. I, I think ultimately those advances in terms of being able to diagnose CTA in the living could could be a grenade from which they have to adapt very quickly at some point. So it, it will be interesting, but, but I think based on its history, um, it will adapt and, and succeed whatever it does. Yeah, I agree. I mean, you, if you look at things, you know, we've known about head injuries for a long time. And you mentioned that, and I find that really interesting because one of the things that the NFL have always done, Matthew, is innovate. And you would yeah. think they would be, and they've innovated already in safety. You would think as long as they can match that innovation uh, with with any problems, because the lure of the game and the big lights and the possibility for some people, it's their only way out of perhaps a bad situation. It's still going to be a career path many want to walk. Yeah, it is. I mean, you know, it's every time somebody gets into a boxing ring, they know the inherent dangers and and boxing as as you look at the revival that's had in the last five to ten years. And I mean, having visited a lot, a lot, a lot of parts of the US, um, a huge number actually, and seeing some of the visited high schools and seeing some of the areas that the kids come from, there is just no way that it stops being that way out. I think that's one of the great things about the NFL is in terms of putting a magazine together every month, you're spoiled for choice with stories because it is so often there are those stories of guys in, in overcoming incredible odds to get to where they've got to. Um, so, yeah, I think while there's, I mean, there's a huge disparity in the US between between the rich and the poor that's so much more extreme than over here. I mean, anybody that goes over there would see that. And, and I don't see that changing anytime soon. Um, so, yeah, I, I think generally it will always be a way out. But, but hopefully a way out into something a lot safer. And as you say, that innovation has, has been part of the NFL story. I've seen lots of the innovations around technology, around concussions. Basically, at the Super Bowl every year, you have all of the, the companies involved coming around Radio Row, where we sit every year, um, and explaining it. And there's, you know, there's a lot more stories to be told beneath the surface on that in terms of some of the work that's been done in recent years to improve the safety that, that maybe the general public aren't as aware of because it doesn't necessarily create the headlines. So, yeah, that's why I, I would have so much confidence in their ability to to kind of ride through the storm um, either way. What about you then, Matthew? You've done this book. You that's, that's out there. It's published. What does your writing career look like now? Is this a Kurt Warner one and done? You know, a highlight of your writing career? Or are you eyeing up a Tom Brady minimum six book experience, maybe a few more, if you can retire to Florida and sneak in a couple more? Yeah, I'd love to do more. Um, I'm, I'm changing jobs at the moment, so I'm becoming I'm kind of managing director of the, the company, the publishing house that Gridiron's in, so there'll be a new editor of Gridiron soon. I'm also involved, as I say, in, in a spin-off production company from that as well, so certainly busy over the next couple of years um, with those bits. But yeah, I'd love to write. But I mean, I had a proposal written for a book on the Patriots um, that I was going to do immediately, but um, I've been usurped. I've just seen a, a brilliant one called The, the Dynasty that's come out um, by an American writer who was embedded with the team for three years. I can't compete with that, unfortunately. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, I've kind of put that on the back burner for now. Yeah, I've got lots of ideas. I'd love to write books in other sports as well in time. Um, but the, the NFL, the, the hope is that this one goes so well that publishers in the UK 
become more interested in publishing books on the NFL. And then, yeah, I'm sure I'll do a lot more. I mean, when you do one on the, the history of the 100 years, I could tell you 20 books now I could write from some of the things I learned in this book, um, exploring things in a lot more depth. So, yeah, definitely interested in doing more. It absolutely sounds like a fascinating journey that you've been on. I'm very excited to read this book. Uh, We are going to get a signed copy as well, and we'll be giving that away. So keep your eyes on the NFL Scotland social media channels in the coming weeks because we'll be giving that away. Very excited to see it. Matthew, thank you for joining us. We wish you all the very best with the book. Um, And yeah, hopefully speak to you again soon. Yeah, cheers, fellas. That's pretty good. He's a good lad, Matthew Sherry Gordon, isn't he? He's a good lad. Yeah, I've done a little bit of work with him in the past. He's always he's always very uh, very knowledgeable. So before we wind this one up for the NFL Scotland podcast, any other NFL stories or anything catching your eye this week that people have either missed or should look out for? Well, I think the big one is uh, Le'Veon Bell um, being released by the Jets. Uh, I'm trying to check just now to see if he's signed with anyone yet, but the rumour is he's going to sign with the Chiefs. Um, there's been loads of news should he sign with the Chiefs maybe the Dolphins the Bills I just don't understand why there's so much excitement for a running back who hasn't averaged four yards per carry since the Obama administration (laughs) he sat out out a season he averaged 3.2 yards a carry last year he averaged 3.9 this year we're in an election year and he hasn't been good since the last one so all of a sudden that's going (laughs) to that's going to turn someone's season around I don't see it no, it made my me picking him up thinking this might be the bounce back season for Bell. <laughs> uh, quite frankly, ridiculous, but that's the way it goes. Now, I think was it Cameron brought to my attention? Somebody brought to my attention when the Colts was it the Colts play the Bears in an yeah. election year. If the Colts win, the Republicans win, which is which is what? I, how do people find these stats? I I am such a junkie for great stats. I, I learned today from. A uh, guy called Alan Edwards, who, who works on Radio Clyde and Radio Forth. There's 118 uses of the word no in Thorn in My Side by the Eurythmics. That's the kind of weird and wonderful stuff uh, that I like. And and again, people find this. And I know you work for PFF. Can, can, I, can you get me a job in the trivia department? And all I have to do is <laughs> records and just find the most outrageous statistics. Because I'll tell you what, I'd be in heaven with that kind of stuff. It's great. I love all these absolutely ludicrous stats and... I, I think there's probably about eight different ones and it probably tells you a different thing if you look from, you know, whatever one you look for in whatever sport, if a certain team win, uh, the Republicans wins, the Democrats yeah. wins. And, and, you know, you'll probably find that eight things happen this year and four of them are for each, uh, for each <laughs> candidate. And all the, the only thing it means is when it hits November is that one of those stats can't be used again. <laughs> that's it. It's gone. It's definitely gone out the window. Well, that's the full-time whistle for episode 119. Thank you for taking the time to listen. Share your thoughts on this episode via Twitter at ScotlandNFL and on Facebook by searching for NFL Scotland. We'll be back next week to pick apart all the pieces from week six and get ready for week seven. Thanks to Gordon. Get well wishes to Cameron. Stay away from the fish. That's all we'll say. Thank you for listening. And don't forget to regularly check the NFL Scotland website. We've got some brilliant writers on that. New content added on a regular basis. We'll be back next week. But until then, bye for now. So you've listened all the way to the end. Now, I wasn't well this week and Gordon thankfully stepped up. But you know what? There was an awful lot of cheap shots in there. 
and it's still me that has to do some of the editing. So do you know what? I had a bit of fun myself. Here's what the guys really said. Ben Roethlisberger is incredible. You know, tell tell the stat guys at PFF that. John Gruden makes you nice and smooth and, and wonderful downstairs. I would have gone for it. Um, let's maybe not go for group meetings together. <laughs>